If you've been with us, we've been in the book of Romans for the past several months. In the last several weeks, we've been in uh, the, kind of the middle of Romans, and we've been asking a question that hasn't been asked this directly, but really examining what is our relationship to God's law. Now, if you've ever been in the dating scene, right, many of you are married, so you've been there. You've had what, they, what the kids these days, or at least when I was in college, which is longer, longer ago than I care to admit now, but back when I was in college, we called that conversation the DTR the defining the relationship conversation. What are we, right? Are we, are we exclusive? Are we an item? What's going on here? The DTR. And so what we've been asking is, what we've been defining the relationship, what is our relationship to God's law? What's our relationship to God's law? And there are really two wrong responses to God's law. We've been looking at this, Romans 5, Romans 6. The first wrong response is this idea that grace wins, And so because Jesus died and he always has forgiveness, that God's law, we just throw that baby out the window. Who cares, right? Grace, Jesus, he loves me, I'm forgiven, so break out the kegs, let's head down to Cancun on spring break and live it up, and hey, if we're on church on Sunday, we we say our Hail Marys, do our stuff, there's forgiveness. Free grace always, no law, doesn't matter. That's one response. And Paul says to that, by no means. That ain't right. That ain't right. In the theological sense, we call this license. We're asking the question, because of God's grace, does that give me a license to just keep sinning, just keep sinning like Dory, right? God says, no, there's no Dory Christians. That's not a thing. We don't just keep sinning. We can't just throw out the law. Now, we can take that, and some Christians would look at that and be like, that's cheap grace. We don't want that. That's not what we want. I was like, yeah. Paul's like, yes. But then we go to the other extreme, which is way over here, and it's like, hey, if a little bit of rules are good, then a lot of rules are even better. If you think about this, like you got your kids, and you say, you know, the, the front, the, the, out in the front, the front yard, you got the road out there, that's dangerous, so you can't go out there, we're going to build a fence around in our backyard, and if you live in a place, like we don't have cougars and that kind of stuff, but say you did, and put like a, a really big fence up, it's like, well, maybe they should still crawl over it. So we put the barbed wire on the top, and, and then you put some fun things in there. It's like, no, no, they could fall and hurt themselves. So we put a fence around those fun things. And before you know it, you've got this fence that's just in this tiny little prison. And that's called legalism. Our rules have rules, right? Don't listen to secular music. Okay, what about country music that sings about Jesus? Like, no, okay, maybe that's okay. What about country music that sings about Jesus and alcohol? Yeah, definitely not, right? Our rules have rules, have rules, have rules. That's called legalism. And it's lifeless and it will steal your joy. No rules leads to debauchery, which is an old word that's like all kinds of wild living, which eventually leads to depression and disease and death. And legalism, like you might be safe, but eventually you've built so many rules around your life that you can't be close to anyone and you wind up in a box. It's called a coffin with no relationships and no one around. It's alone, it's isolating, it's suffocating, and you die. And so my question for you this morning is, what is our relationship to God's law? Is it these only two options, or that's not grammatically correct, do we only have these two options or is there a third option? And praise the Lord, there is a third option. And Paul walks us through that this morning in Romans 7, verses 1 through 13. He gives us another metaphor. Last week, Paul, Paul and Wes helped us understand our relationship to the law through the metaphor of slavery. And I closed the service by referencing that great theologian, Bob Dylan, right? In the song that he wrote, You Gotta Serve Somebody, right? I'm not going to try and sing it, although I could probably sing it as good as he does, <laughs> Right? 
You got to serve. I'm not going to do it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> He's not good. Anyways, the point of that song, the point of that song is that we are going to serve someone in this life. And that's what Paul wants us to think about in our relationship to God, our relationship to the law. If we're not serving God, then we are serving sin. And while sin has the ability to give us some pleasure, it does. Eventually, that pleasure wears off and we are smacked upside the head with condemnation, with shame, with fear. We hide, we isolate. Sin is a cruel master, a cruel mistress. And last week, Paul and Wes helped us understand that we have the opportunity through the gospel to choose a new master, to choose a new master who defines himself as a good, good father and a good shepherd, who will not lead us into depression and disease and death, but who will lead us into life. He will lead us by still waters. He will restore our souls. He will lead us in paths of righteousness. He will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. So we don't have to fear evil because he will protect us with his rod and his staff. And that was the invitation of last week, that we can serve sin or we can serve a good, good father. The choice is yours to make. The choice is yours to make. This week, Paul is going to help us think our relationship through to the law and to our Father in heaven by using a different, merit, different metaphor, the metaphor of marriage. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the 13 verses of chapter 7, and then we're going to work backwards through it because I think... I think it's a little bit easier to explain it that way. So let's read it together. Romans 7, I'll be out of the NIV this morning. We've got those in the black Bibles in front of you, on your phone, on the screen. Lots of ways to take in the Word. I would invite you to, to get it in front of you, to leave it out in front of you so you can say, what's he talking about? And hopefully you can reference back and see that I'm talking about Scripture and not just something that I think. So Romans 7, starting in verse 1. Paul says this, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit. If you're the underlined circle type, highlight that verse. We belong to another, that we might bear fruit. Verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore the fruit of death. But now, by dying to that what by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have not known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, 
and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. All right. If your head is spinning, that is okay. This is a mouthful. Paul, love him. Crazy wordy. Sometimes once you figure out like what he says, it's like, why didn't you just say it like that? So hopefully we're going to walk, we're going to walk through this and understand this a little bit better. Now I said we're going to work through this backwards and we are, but we need to stop at verse one first. Paul says at the beginning of chapter seven and verse one, he says, I am speaking to those who know the law. So Paul in this section of scripture is writing to Christians. He's writing to people that, that know God's law. And I recognize that there are many Christians with us here this morning, and I praise God for that. But I also don't want to be naive. There are also among us people that don't know what they are yet, and that is okay. I want you to know that it's a privilege to have you here. If you're seeking, if you got drugged here by a friend or a spouse and you don't really want to be here, that's awesome. We're still happy to have you. I want you to know this is a safe place. It's a safe place to seek, to ask questions, to figure things out. There's, there's not much that you can say that's going to offend me or many people here. You can ask anything you want. And I, can't, I don't have all the answers, but my hope and prayer is that if you don't know Jesus yet, that you will meet him here through these people. Now, with that said, because Paul is writing to Christians, those who understand the law, and some of us might not have our, our heads fully around what the law is, I thought it would be helpful to first address kind of that question before we get into it. So, so what is the law? Well, when Paul writes his letters, he actually uses this word 121 times. Paul has a lot to say about the law. When he uses these words, or this word for law, throughout the New Testament in his letters, it can refer to several different things. He can refer to the Old Testament and really the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch. If you like big fancy words that you probably will never use, the Pentateuch, right? It's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is kind of the law. Within those five books, there are over 600, 613 to be exact, 600 laws that God gives to his people on how to set up a government, on what to do if you have mold in your house, on how to treat someone who committed adultery, all kinds of different laws, laws on laws on laws. And sometimes when Paul talks about the law, he's referring to the Pentateuch, to the first five books of the Bible. Other times when he talks about the law, he's referring to the commandments, as in the Ten Commandments, which are fairly self-explanatory. Don't ask me to quote them off the top of my head. I would leave one out for sure. But you can go read that for yourself in Exodus. The Ten Commandments. And then other times still, when Paul refers to the law, he's referring to just generally right and wrong. Just universal right and wrong. And I think that last one, when he talks about law and our relationship, I think the last one is really what he has in mind. So we're talking about right and wrong here this morning. And if you're a believer, if you're a Christian here, those who know the law, you probably have a fairly well-defined definition of right and wrong, because hopefully you've spent a decent amount of time studying God's Word. And God's Word has a lot to say specifically about what is right and what is wrong. The Bible says uh, it, call, it calls good things righteous. 
talks about how God loves justice and righteousness. When we hear words like mercy, love, grace, integrity, purity, truth, compassion, and equity, that is all summed up in the scriptures of what it means to be good and the path to having a good life. So if you're a believer, you probably have a fairly well-defined definition of good, justice, and righteousness, and you understand that wrong or bad equals sin. And it's the absence of all of those words that we just referenced. It's sinfulness, it's impurity, it's injustice, it's cruelty, it's lies, and it's greed. Indeed, the Bible has a lot to say about what is right and what leads to the good life. It also has a lot to say about what is wrong and leads to depression and disease and death. And as Christians, we are aware of all of these things. But we're not just aware of the law. We're aware of what the law tells us. The law helps us understand God, helps us understand who he is like, his character, right? When God lays out these laws, it shows us that he is, he's patient and kind. He loves justice and righteousness. He's slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy. It shows us that God is a God of order, not a God of chaos, If you've thought to yourself over these last several years of the the sexual revolution and redefining gender identity and all of this stuff, it's like, how in the world are we supposed to know what's right, what's true, where we're headed in life? It's chaos. The Bible gives us a refreshing take on all of that and reminds us that God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. He's a God of sanity and common sense, not insanity. He gives us a true north. He helps us understand what is right, what is wrong. So the law tells us about who God is, what it's like. It also restrains evil. God puts governments in place. He gives us laws to help this world not be as evil or as wicked as it could be, which honestly is a little bit alarming when we think about some of the things that are happening. Just ask yourself or maybe ponder that question a little bit later. What would it look like? What would our life look like if there truly were no more laws? If there truly was no more government, as imperfect as it might be, scary place, scary place. And so Christians have a pretty well-developed understanding of God's law, but you don't have to be a Christian to understand right and wrong. You don't have to be a Christian to understand right and wrong. The Bible tells us that you and I were created in God's image. That means whether you know him or not, God has put his image upon you, upon your heart. So each and every one of us knows in our heart what is right and what is wrong. Now, we can warp that. We can sear our conscience. We can move away from it. But it's through active, active rebellion that that happens. And so, all of us, whether we know God and have a well-developed definition of the law or we just kind of have that innate conscience within us, we all kind of know something of what it means to be right and wrong. And we all have a pretty mixed relationship to God's law, Right? We have a very mixed relationship to God's law. At times, we will appeal to it. We will appeal to right and wrong in several situations. One, when we're doing well. When we're feeling like we're actually towing the line and we're living pretty good as opposed to wrong in our definition of whatever that is, we'll appeal to the law, right? Look at me. Look at what I'm up to. Check me out. I'm awesome. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm measuring up. And so we'll appeal to God's law. We also will appeal to God's law, the the definition of right and wrong, when we're pointing the finger at others. When we're criticizing and judging, we will make appeals to the law, to what is right and what is wrong. Hey, you're out of line. You ought to cut that out, right? Jump on social media. Everybody, this is right, this is wrong. We we love to appeal to the law when when we're judging other people. 
When we're failing, that's a different story, isn't it? We reject the law. Sometimes that's because we feel shame, we feel guilt, we feel fear, fear of rejection. And so rather than embracing God's law, we we run from it. We don't want anything. How dare you tell me what I should do? Because if it's out of line, I don't measure up. I can't handle that emotionally. I don't want anything to do with that law. I'll make the law for myself out of fear of rejection or out of pleasure. God just wants to limit my fun. You kind of stink as a king, right? Our politicians kind of stink as legislators. I would do a better job. I could run this country better. I could run this world better than you, Lord. I know what's right for me. Don't tell me what to do. And so we reject it. This is Christians. This is non-Christians. It's a very mixed bag when it comes to our relationship to God's law. A very mixed bag. And Paul, through Romans 7, he's saying, listen, here's what the law is. And he says some interesting things. He says that he didn't know what sin was before the law came in. In fact, he didn't have a desire to sin because he didn't know what sin was. And then the law here brings this desire and sin kind of warps it and, and creates all this havoc. So with our mixed relationship to the law and then some of the, the condemnation that comes through the law, the only natural question is, is to say, well, is the law sinful? Is God's law really good? And that's the question that Paul raises for us in verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is this law sinful? Is there something wrong with what God tells us about right and wrong? Paul says, certainly not. But he goes on to explain this kind of, this difficult reality. Nevertheless, I wouldn't have known what sin was has it not been for the law. For I wouldn't have known what, it, what, what covenanting really was if the law hadn't said, you shall not covenant. So we have to ask ourselves, is God's law really that helpful? Or is it more hurtful? Is it sinful? Paul tells us in verse 12, he says, it's not. The law of God is holy, he says. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. He says the problem is not with the law. It's with what sin does with the law through deception. It awakens desires in us, right? Sets that tree of that tempting fruit inside of us and says, I know God said, but did he really say? Is that what he really meant? Boy, that looks pretty pleasing to the eye. That looks pretty tasteful. I don't think you could go ahead, take that fruit, right? It warps our perception of who God is and it convinces us to disobey. And again, all of sort of this is maybe a little confusing. I heard, I heard an illustration this week that I think is helpful for, for us to remember when we're thinking about God's law. We've all been to the doctor before, right? Some of us have been to the doctor for tests, whether that be an x-ray, an MRI, a CAT, a CAT scan, something like that. The law is like an x-ray. The law is like an MRI in that it is a diagnostic tool. It does not have the ability to create life, to sustain life, to give you joy. The only thing the law has to do, or has, it's capa- capable of doing, is what an x-ray or an MRI is capable of doing. Show us the problem. It shows us our problem. Just like an MRI shows the doctor the problem, but it has no power to offer any healing, any restoration. The law is like that. It's a diagnostic tool. It cannot heal you. It cannot save you. Apart from grace, the only thing the law can do is judge and condemn you. Is judge and condemn you. And if you persist on relating to the law and to God, if you relate to God 
and you think, the only way I can know that the Father loves me and I have a relationship with me is if I follow all of these rules. If you live under that, if you live in relationship to God through law, eventually it will kill you. It will kill you. That's what Paul says. It will kill you, and that's a good thing. Because Jesus comes along with grace, and he says, I have the power of resurrection. I have the ability to, to once you've died to that old marriage that's destructive and horrible, I have the ability to resurrect you into a new marriage, into a new covenant founded upon grace. And this is where verses 2 through 6 come in. Paul shows us what our relationship to the law ought to be. And essentially he says that living in relationship to God based on law is like living in a bad marriage. And living in relationship to God based on grace is like living in a good marriage. And he says what, what needs to happen is you need to look at that diagnostic tool and let it condemn you to death. Because the only way out of that old, old destructive marriage is not through divorce, it's through death. That is what breaks the chain of the law. So we die to ourself, we die to the law in Christ when he was crucified, so that we can be raised to new life, we can covenant to a new spouse, one who promises to relate to us based on grace and love rather than on law. Now, some of you, again, your heads might be swimming a little bit, so I want you to think about, think about a marriage, think about a relationship based on law, based on grace. Some of you know what it's like to be in a relationship, in a marriage, in a coaching relationship, in a, in a uh, uh, co-worker-boss relationship that's founded upon law. It's essentially, that person doesn't care about you, they only care about their expectations and how you're doing living up to them. And anybody who's ever been in a marriage like that, in, in a, a bo boss coworker, in a teammate relationship like that, you will know that that is exhausting. That is a soul-crushing way to live. Because when you live a relationship based on law, there's only two categories, perfection or failure. And so it's a roller coaster of emotion, right? You can be going through life trying to please your dad, trying to please your spouse, trying to please your coach, and you might be pretty close to living up to those expectations. You might start to feel pretty good about yourself for a while. The problem is there is always a nagging suspicion and feeling in the back of your head, a fear of rejection, because you know eventually the shoe's going to drop, you're going to fail to meet the expectation, and you're going to be cast out, rebuked, the hammer's going to fall, you're going to be rejected. We know what this is like. Our culture is really big on law right now, isn't it? Right? Really big on law. Maybe not always the right law, but everybody thinks they know what is right. And everybody is more than happy to jump on social media and scream and yell at everyone else because this is what's right and this is what's wrong and boy, buddy, you better toe the line or get the heck out of here. This has died down a little bit since the election, but I know families in our area that had children that refused to come back because of how a vote was cast in the ballot box. Friends, that is relationship based on law, not on grace. Here's what this looks like. Here's my law. Here's what I think. Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. And I will tolerate you, which, which is completely the wrong word. That's not what this means, right? I'll tolerate you if you conform to what I say is right and wrong. If you measure up to my law, then we can have a relationship. If you don't, well then get the heck out of here. I never want to see you. Let me just ask you, how's that working for our culture? 
I read, I read a guy this week talking about this. Gallup did a poll during 2020 and said that the mental health and well-being of every group, ethnicity, all the identity groups, all the groups, all of it was down in 2020 except for one. Except for one group. Every group, their health, their well-being, their hope, all of it was just headed into the toilet except for one group. Do you know what that one group was? Folks that went to church every week. Yeah. Here's why I think that's the case. Because hopefully if the gospel is being proclaimed, that we do relationships based on grace and hope rather than based on law. That we make room for people that might disagree with us. That ultimately, at the end of the day, we care more about Jesus than we care about our politics. We let the Bible inform what we think more than what Trump or Biden or, or whatever thinks or our opinion about this, that, or anything. We let the Bible and God be our truth north and we agree to unite around Jesus Christ and the gospel and have dialogue and still love one another even if we disagree in some secondary things. Paul says, the law has no power to create life. The only thing law can do is kill, judge, and destroy. It's not that it's bad. It's just that we cannot have law without grace. Law without grace is destructive. And so Paul invites us, he says, in Jesus, let's die to relating to God and relating to others based upon law. Let's be remarried to a new spouse, to Jesus, a new and better spouse who chooses to prize the relationship and the love over and above all else. Jesus comes to us and he says, listen, I promise if you make a commitment, if you commit yourself to me in a holy covenant of marriage for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in death, Jesus says, we will never be parted and I will always be happy to see you. I promise I will never just be a domineering list of rules, but I will offer to you a love relationship built on grace. Paul says this is the new way of the spirit that he references, not the old way of the lifeless written code. Jesus invites us into a relationship built on love and built on grace. Now let me make this practical for us. Here's what this looks like in everyday life. Just this past week, I learned that one of my children said something very unkind in his school to uh, another classmate. We weren't told what it was. We were told that the teacher dealt with it, and she felt like he was, you know, sufficiently remorseful and didn't feel like he needed to pass it on. She rebuked him and, and kind of handled the situation, which is great, but I still wanted to know what he said. And so I just asked him, Rach and I were having, having dinner as a, as a family, I just asked him, I said, hey, bud, I heard you said something really unkind to one of your classmates. And he got kind of, you know, like a deer in headlights a little bit. He said, what'd you say? What'd you say? He instantly started crying. Tears. And not just like kind of whimpering. He was, he was scared. I said, bud, just tell me what you said. He said, I can't. I said, why not? He said, I'm too scared. I'm too scared. I'm too scared. In that moment, church, I had the opportunity to respond as a parent based on law or based on grace. Here's what law would have said. You should be scared because I'm about to bring the pain based on what you told me. You know you need, like well, your mother and I have taught you better than that. I want to hear what you said and then, brother, I'm going to bring the wrath of God on your hind end, right? <laughs> 
And we do spank our kids. We do it in love. They always know why they're getting disciplined, all of that stuff. But I felt like, because the teacher had already dealt with that, I told him, Rachel and I were there. I said, you're not going to get punished. He said, I'm still, I'm too scared, Dad. I said, you're not going to get punished. He said, I'm too scared. I said, okay, let me ask you this. Buddy, are you my son? Well, yeah. I said, okay, what could you ever do that would make you not my son? What could you ever say that would make you not my child? He said, nothing. I said, that's right. You know what that means? It means your mom and I, we're stuck with you. <laughs> right? <laughs> we're stuck with you, and we love you. We love you. I want you to know that there is nothing in this world that you could ever do or ever say that would ever make you not my child and that would ever make me not love you. You can tell me what you said. It's going to be okay. And we can talk about it. And finally, he did. He opened up and he told me. It wasn't great. It wasn't great. Folks, I want my son and my children to know that truth, the reality that there is grace. Yeah, there, there can be discipline and there needs to be sometimes, but I need them to know that their mom and I, we are a safe place for them to tell us anything. They come home pregnant out of wedlock. Is that disappointing? Absolutely. They're still my kid. We're going to love them through that. We're not going to cast them out. There's nothing that they, they could ever do that is going to make me reject them from my family. I need him to know that. That's what grace looks like. It's so different than law. The relationship is the most important, not the ability to measure up to expectations. Friends, you and I are the child in that story when we relate to the Father a lot, aren't we? We fail to measure up. We sin again in the same way or in doing the same thing that we promised God and we promised ourselves that we would never do again. And when we come into the Father's presence, we don't come boldly into the throne of grace like we're told to come. We come sheepishly. We come shamed. We come fearful because we believe that we still relate to God based on law rather than grace. And King Jesus comes to you and I and he says, Buddy, are you my child? And if you've expressed faith, you need to know that you are, that you're adopted. Those papers have been signed and no court in this world or the next can ever nullify it. And Jesus says, is there anything that you can do or say to make you not my child? No. This is a safe place. I have grace for you. I'm always happy to see you. I'm glad that you're here. Tell me what you did. Let's work on your heart together. That's the invitation that you and I have. That's the invitation of verse 4 of Romans 7. We used to belong to the law, but if we have faith, we can die to that old marriage. We can covenant to a new spouse who promises to always be for us, to always be happy to see us, to always be able to help us, to make us fruitful, we're told in another passage that nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love that is ours in Christ Jesus. Romans 7 verse 4 tells us, can we pull that slide up, Kyle? It tells us that we've died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another in holy marriage, 
through adoption as sons and daughters, you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might be fruitful for God. Church, there is not much in this world that compares to the joy that you and I can experience when we enjoy God and bring Him glory. We bring Him glory by being fruitful, by being useful. I believe the Lord's called me to be a husband, to be a father, and to be a pastor. I believe He's called me, to, he's called me and He's equipped me and gift me, gifted me for those things. I don't do it perfect, but when I, when I feel like I'm doing it well, like I'm honoring the Lord, there is no better feeling in this life. There just isn't. It is fulfilling. It brings joy and peace to be useful and fruitful in God's kingdom. Satan knows this, friend. Satan knows that if you've been adopted, he can't unsign those adoption papers. He knows he can't steal your salvation, but he can steal something. Do you know what he can steal from you as a Christian? Your fruitfulness. Your fruitfulness. He does this through division by making us get off topic on other things that are secondary rather than the gospel. We get worked up about paint colors and politics and ideologies and all this stuff rather than talking about the gospel of Jesus, and it divides us. He distracts us with the worries and cares of this life. We got to feed, we got to clothe, we got to do all of those things, and those things can, can drown, they can distract us from living for Jesus, and he can discourage you. He can discourage you by convincing you that you still relate to your father based on law rather than grace. You haven't been fruitful for a while. You've slipped up again. And the voice of sin and Satan and your flesh comes in and says, well, you're not meeting God's expectations. How dare you, how dare you call yourself a Christian? You might be, but you're not a very good one. Sure, God, if he wanted to use you, he probably doesn't because you made a mess of things. We start to get discouraged, defeated, unfruitful for God because we're believing a lie rather than believing the truth. That God is always happy to see you and that he is always able to use you and make you fruitful because it ain't about you. It's about the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. I got a phone call this week from a buddy of mine who is a believer. I love this guy. He loves the Lord. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And that said, he's had a rough couple months. Struggle. Struggle to live up and into everything that God has created him to be. It's been discouraging for him in a lot of ways. He called me this week. And he said, hey, I need to tell you something that happened at work today. And there was a new spring in his step over the, over the phone. He was jacked up. I said, what's up, man? Tell me. He said, I just had the opportunity to share the gospel with a coworker of mine. He came in, apparently he knew that I had a relationship with Jesus and had some faith, and he asked me some questions, and I talked to him for an hour about Jesus and about how Jesus is helping me have a better marriage. It's not perfect, but we're working on it, and how there's always redemption. And for an hour, I talked to him about faith. And this guy has been jacked up since that time, fulfilled, encouraged, joyful, because he recognized that God used him in a powerful way in his workplace. He went on to say, he said, I needed this. I was starting to get really discouraged because I haven't been everything that I know God wants me to be. And I was starting to wonder, can God still use me? Does he want to use me? 
I was starting to doubt that he ever could again. And I believe that the Father in heaven knew that. And he knew how important it is for his children to experience his fruitfulness in his life. And he walked that gentleman into his office and made him curious about the faith. And then used this guy to preach the gospel to someone who is lost and needs Jesus. And that put a spring in his step. Because you and I were created to enjoy the Father and to bring him glory. And there is nothing more satisfying in this world than when we do that. The law, apart from grace, steals our ability to enjoy God. The law, apart from grace, makes us think that God could never use us because we don't measure up. But Jesus comes along and says, listen, you've died to that marriage, and by faith you are living in a new one. And my marriage with you is based on grace. It's based on what I did, not what you can do. That means son, daughter, wife, husband, I am always happy to see you, and I am always able to make you useful, no matter what. No matter what. May each and every one of you know the grace that the Father has for you, increasingly so. And may you see his fruitfulness at work in your life. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for grace. Lord, grace is something that is really difficult for me to wrap my head around. I am personally, I have high expectations uh, I'm more performance-oriented oftentimes than I am love-oriented and grace-oriented. This is hard for me. It's hard for a lot of us. Would you woo us by your grace, Father? Would you preach truth to our hearts? Remind us, Lord, that by faith alone in Jesus, we have died to that marriage to the law. We have been resurrected by faith and by grace into a new marriage with a good Savior, with a good shepherd, with a good, good Father. Overwhelm us with your grace, Lord, so that we might enjoy coming into your presence, not as a scared child, but as a child convinced that there is nothing, no height, no depth, no breadth, no width, nothing in all of creation or under creation or in, in the spiritual realm that could ever separate us from your love. And Father, as we walk increasingly in that love, Make us fruitful for your glory and our joy, we pray. Amen.